Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I want to start this message. We're going to spend a lot of time in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapters 8 and 9, which is a two chapters, a huge chunk, where Paul is, talks all about um, uh, giving and a giving life, not just having to do with money, but all kinds of things. But I want to start with Paul quoting Jesus, famous quote in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. And Paul is talking to the Christians at Ephesus here. And uh, he says this, and he, he's summing up his three years of ministry with, him, with them just before he leaves. And he says this, at the end he says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And uh, again, that's a very famous quote. Often it gets said as, It is better to give than to receive, which isn't wrong either. But, but what it actually says is it is more blessed to give than to receive. And again, we've, we've all heard this quote so many times. For many of us, it just kind of goes uh, over our heads. But actually, I just wonder if we just stopped here for a moment and let that sink in, how radical this statement actually is. Like if we actually believe this, if we actually felt this at the core of our hearts, and we actually believe this to the core of our hearts, that it is actually more blessed to give. It is more blessed to serve, it is more blessed to do these things than to get something, how would that radically change? I mean, it's just, it's actually upside down. We know this quote, but our thinking, our paradigm is reverse of this, actually, even though, even though we know the quote, even though most of us are following Jesus and all that sort of stuff, this is actually a complete upside down paradigm shift. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, the amazing thing is Paul's not just quoting this as some random thing. This verse is coming at the end of a, a short little synopsis where he sums up the life he has lived with the Ephesian Christians for the previous three years. And I'm going to go and I'm going to read it and I'm going to come back to this quote. So if we start four verses earlier in verse 31, we're going to see that Paul lived that life. So what does a life look like if the paradigm actually clicked with us? It is more blessed to give than to receive. What would that kind of a life look like? Well, Paul's going to show us because he was living it, okay? And so he says this in verse 31, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, again, he's speaking to the Christians at Ephesus, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So we're going to keep going in just a moment, but just here in this first statement, we can see three different ways in which Paul gave. Not just, and again, this is not just talking money. When it says it is more blessed to give than to receive, it's way bigger than that. When the Bible talks about giving, it's giving your life. Okay, so it's not just money. So Paul, just in his first statement, break, we can break down three different ways in which he gave. He gave of his time, okay? So for three years, I did not cease night and day. That's a lot of, that's a lot of time that he gave to the people in this church. Three years, night and day. He put in long hours and he gave of himself to these Ephesian Christians, night and day. That's long. Number two, we see that he was admonishing them. We see that word admonish there in the second line. He was teaching them. He was using his gifts and his abilities, okay? So he was, his time, he gave them three years, night and day. That's, that's hard. That's long. That's many hours. I gave you my time, long hours. I admonish you. I gave you of my gifts. And then lastly, we see though, he didn't just do it with his gifts. It says that he did it with tears. He gave his heart and emotions. See, it's one thing to, to serve. You know, it's interesting to me in our culture, 
We have become such a self-centered culture that we've even managed to turn, isn't this true? We've even managed to turn serving and giving into a self-centered pursuit. Have you noticed that? That for a lot of people nowadays in our culture, even when it comes to serving or volunteering, actually, the serving and volunteering is about them. Lots of people nowadays, it's like, I want to serve in a place that maximizes my talents and abilities, where I can feel a sense of fulfillment. And of course, not all of that is bad. God has given us gifts and abilities. Absolutely, we should use them for him. It's not bad to want to use your gifts and abilities. It's also not bad to get a sense of fulfillment from serving God. That's not bad either. But, but that's, not, that, that's for many people become the point. I, I won't serve unless I find that perfect place where I can give in my gifts and abilities, where I can feel good about myself, where I can feel a sense of, of, of fulfillment. And my question is, if the only kind of serving and giving we're ever supposed to do is serving and, and giving that maximizes my personal sense of fulfillment and use my gifts, my talents and abilities, who will ever wash a toilet for Jesus? Like at some point, there has to be a place where we do menial tasks for the Lord as worship. Who will ever hold babies? Now I know sometimes uh, grandmothers, they get to this place and they feel a, a gifting and a love for little babies in the nursery, but we don't have enough babies, or I mean enough, well we have enough babies. We have a lot of babies. Um, but we don't have enough grandmas to take care of all the babies in our nursery. Like, who's going to take care of the babies if the only kind of service we do is service that maximizes my personal talents and abilities and gives me a sense of fulfillment? Okay? So, Paul may have gotten a sense of fulfillment from his work with the Ephesians, but that's actually not what was driving him. What was driving him was love. It wasn't about him. For three years, night and day, I did not fail to admonish you with tears. He gave of his heart. He wasn't serving for himself. He was serving, he was giving of himself to them. It was about them. It was not about him. He was serving out of love. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. So he wasn't in it for the personal fulfillment. He also wasn't in it for the money. Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So we come back to this quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul sums up his ministry with these Ephesian Christians for three years. And it's summed up by tears and hard work and night and day and all this sort of stuff. And you would think that at the end of a list like that of three years, the punchline to this list of how hard he's worked and how much he's given himself, the punchline should be, and now I need a sabbatical. I'm burned out. And of course, there's nothing wrong. I know some of you here might work in a job where you get sabbaticals and stuff. I'm not making fun of sabbaticals. But in our culture, that's what you would think. You give a long list for three years, I've given myself. Night and day, tears, hard work. I've done all this stuff, and this is my lead up to the punchline, which is, and now I need a sabbatical or I need a lengthy vacation because I'm burned out. And yet, actually, if you read in the context here, Paul's not on his way to a vacation. He's on his way to the church at Jerusalem where he's going to do the exact same thing he's been doing in the Ephesians. He's going to do it with the church at, at Jerusalem with the added component of he knows from the Holy Spirit that he is going to suffer badly and be persecuted. So you go, whoa! Okay, I have given myself three years, night and day, tears. I have worked hard. I have poured out myself for these people, and I'm going to go do it with someone else. You think, this guy is going to be burned out. But no, what's his punchline? His punchline at the end of summing up how hard he's worked for these people and how much he's given himself is, 
it is more blessed to give than to receive. Instead of talking about how burnt out he is, he says, I'm living the blessed life. I'm living the blessed life. So my question is, what does it mean when Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive? Well, the first thing we know is it is more blessed to give than to receive. To live a blessed life, we first of all know that being blessed in this sense does not mean easier, easier life. And that might be hard for some of us to really grasp at a subconscious heart level because in our culture, we have come to view easier is better. Easier is better. That's how we think in our culture for sure. So if I'm, not, if I'm struggling in some way, I need to do less work and then I'll be happy. And certainly there's a place for that. Certainly there's a place you know, where people get unbalanced and they are working too much. There's no, there's no question about that. I'm not throwing that out. But what I'm saying is in our culture, we view easier, it leads to happier. That's what we think. So if I just had more holidays at work, I would be happier. If I could just retire earlier and have more time to do whatever I want, I would be happier. If I had less stress in the evening so I could just kick back and watch more TV, I would be happier. That's what we think. Easier equals happier. But we see from Paul's example here, Paul lists, I, night and day, tears, worked hard, ministered my whole life for you, and I'm living the blessed life. So when Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive, he is not saying it is more blessed to have an easier life. The giving life will be a harder life than a receiving life, but somehow it is more blessed. So what does it mean it is more blessed to give than to receive? Well, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians now, chapters 8 and 9. We're going to spend the rest of this message unpacking those two chapters, all right? And uh, we're going to start in chapter 8, verse 1. And what Paul is doing in, in uh, chapters 8 and 9 is he's actually raising up a special offering, okay? He's, uh, they're doing a fundraising campaign, and he's ra raising money that he wants to bring back to the Jerusalem church when he goes back to the Jewish Christians. And, uh, and so he's speaking to the Corinthians here, chapter 8, verse 1, and he's going to start, he's going to share with them an example of another church that's already been given, the Macedonians, all right? So chapter 8, verse 1, and as we unpack these two chapters, at the end of our unpacking, we're going to see what it means what it means when Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive, okay? So chapter 8, verse 1, let's work our way through this. Paul says to the Corinthians, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, so we just got to pause there for just a moment. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. I, I didn't put up the rest of the verse because I wanted us to think about this for a moment first. God has given, so Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he says God gave the Macedonian churches, one of them was a church at Philippi, there was a few different churches there, but God, Paul says to the, to the Corinthians, God gave the Christians, the churches in Macedonia, a special gift of grace, okay? So the question is, as we're watching, as, as, before we go forward, I want us to test our own thoughts. What, what do we think is a special gift of grace? So, so God gave the, the Macedonian churches a special gift of grace. What do you think that special gift of grace was, okay? And all kinds of ideas come to my head, okay? So maybe they had a pile of revival meetings that were really, really successful and tons and tons of people got saved. Maybe that was God's special gift of grace. They had revival meetings, lots of people get, got saved, the churches are filled, okay? Or maybe God's special gift of grace to the churches at Macedonia was 
Uh, miracles. Lots of people got healed. Uh, lots of signs and wonders. None of, these are all wonderful things. Absolutely. Those could be signs. Those are signs sometimes that God is at work somewhere. Absolutely. So maybe that, that's a possibility too. Could be miracles and signs and wonders. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe because we're talking about money here. So maybe the sign of God, maybe God's special gift of grace to Macedonians is that the fi- they were having struggle paying off their, their house church buildings and stuff. So, so God just, and the money flowed and they took up a special offering and it all got paid off. Okay. Lots of different options there. Let's keep reading and let's see what actually is this special gift of grace, okay? So we keep reading. What is the special gift of grace that God gave to the Macedonians? Well, we keep reading in verse 2. Four, in a severe test of affliction, well, that doesn't sound very good there yet, but okay, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Something must be wrong there. For they gave... For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay, whoa, whoa. God gave the Macedonians a special gift of grace. And what was his gift of grace to them? That they gave. Is that not messed up, upside-down thinking? Okay, stop. Like, let's, let's pay attention here. First verse. God gave the Macedonians a special gift of grace. Now Paul goes and explains what the special gift of grace is, and we find out that God's special gift of grace to the Macedonians was that they gave. They gave. That was their gift from God, was that they gave. The kingdom of God is absolutely operates upside down and backwards to the kingdoms of this world. And this passage here absolutely proves it because even those of us who walk with Christ, so often we are influenced by the ways of the world. This is backwards to us that a gift from God is that they gave. See, the kingdom of God works different than our kingdoms. See, when Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive, he actually meant it. And when he wanted to bless these Macedonians, his blessing to them was that they could give. It actually is more blessed to give than to receive. He meant that. It's real. It's true. God's kingdom works totally different. You want to advance God's kingdom, you have to not do it with human ways. And in God's kingdom, God's gift of grace can be that we give. And I want you to notice also the way that these Macedonians gave. Okay, I want you to notice the way they gave. And we're going to underline some stuff there. Four, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. Now, first of all, those two phrases should not go in a sentence together, should they? Severe test of affliction, abundance of joy. Does that make any sense to you? Kingdom of God, kingdoms of this world, upside down. Upside down, totally different. You can't do God's kingdom in human ways. Good intentions like that, it won't work. It's upside down. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, there's another few things that should not be in the same sentence. Extreme poverty overflowing in a wealth of generosity. How do those two things go together? Do you have an abundance of joy in a severe test of affliction? Do you overflow in a wealth of generosity out of extreme poverty? How do these things go together? And then he carries on. These Macedonians, see, these Macedonians, if, if, if we had been Paul... We would have seen these, so severe test of affliction. These churches were undergoing a severe persecution, okay? 
And they had almost no money. They had almost nothing. They were very, very, very poor. If we would have seen these Christians, we would have said, we don't want you to give. Don't give. You guys are not able to give. We'll do the giving. You guys are not allowed to do the giving because you don't have anything to give. We just want to relieve you of that. And I think Paul may have said that to them too. Because look what it says in verse 4. They begged. Absolutely not, the Macedonian Christians said. Absolutely not. You will not cut us out of this, out of this gift. You're not going to get all the fun to get to do the giving. We are going to get to do the giving. And they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in this offering. That is upside down, backwards thinking. And isn't it just a little bit attractive to you? I mean, not the severe test of affliction or the poverty part. But isn't there something, there's something about this passage, doesn't it, that kind of tugs at your heart? I know it certainly does for me. There's a part of me that says, I would like to be a part of a group of people like that once in my life to experience that. Abundance of joy like that, overflowing in a wealth of generosity, begging us earnestly for the favor of giving. There's something in all of our hearts. I mean, there's one part of us I know that's fear, and we're going to come to that in a little bit in this message. We're going to talk about fear. Fear of what God's calling to us. Some of you I know are sitting there right now and there are cold beads of perspiration forming on your forehead as you read this passage. What is he going to weakly challenge us to do out of this? <laughs> right? Like what on earth? Okay? So there's, you're not quite sure to say amen to this message yet, but there's another part of you. So one part is fear. I don't know if I want to be like those massive ones. I don't know what Chris is going to ask us to do. But there's another part of you that goes, I would like to be a part of something like that. I would like to be a part of something. You know why there's a part of us that wants a piece of that? Because this is, this is not human. Amen. This isn't human. Okay? Those of you who have kids, you will know this. I've got four kids. Human beings don't come out of the womb acting like this. Okay? We don't do this. We don't have abundance of joy in extreme poverty. We don't overflow with a wealth of generosity out of extreme poverty. We, human beings don't do this. You know why this is attractive to us? Because this is the Spirit of God manifesting Himself through a group of people. These people are reflecting God's heart. This is what God looks like. So God is manifesting himself in a group of people. And for those of us who follow Jesus, there's a part of us that gets very attracted to that. When we see the Spirit of God at work somewhere, we say, I would like to be a part of that someday. I would love to experience that for myself someday because that's God. Well, we keep reading. Verse 5, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The part I want you to notice in this passage here is that in part, see that you excel in this act of grace also is Paul is not lifting up the Macedonians as a one-time thing. This is one special church, and each church is kind of different, and this was that church's thing. He says, I want you I want the church of Corinth to be like this. He wants all churches. See, this was a not a special thing that was just the Macedonians. Actually, this is supposed to be part of the DNA of what it means to be a church, a church family. This is part of the DNA of what it means to be a Christian, actually. It's, it's not just for one church. That was their expression of Christianity. This is actually supposed to be Normal. I see that you excel in this act of grace also. And we're going to get to why in just a moment, but there's one more verse we've got to read before we get to the, the source. Verse 8, and I like this, Paul is so gracious. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. I love, God, Paul is so gracious throughout this passage. 
This is not about law. This is not about forcing. This is not about guilt and condemnation. The Macedonian Christians were not giving because preachers were getting up and saying, you've got to give everything. You've got to give everything. You've got to give everything or you're not a good Christian. That's not what they were doing. And the example of the Macedonians is not supposed to be a stick we beat ourselves with. Oh, we're not that good. We'll never measure up. All this sort of stuff. That's not what we're supposed to do with this passage. It's supposed to be something we aspire to. It's like, I want a piece of that. I want God to work in my life like that. It's not about guilt and condemnation. It's not about I have to. It's about there's something there those Macedonians had that we wanted. It's supposed to be in the church. That's what it means to be a church. Now, what was the source of these Macedonians, this Macedonian abundance of joy, overflowing wealth of generosity, begging for the favor to give? What Paul says in the, in the next verse. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Giving, the giving life. I think many of us, here, let, me, let me approach it from this side. I think a lot of us, if we said, what are the kind of the central practices that every Christian needs? Like, what are the central practices every Christian needs in their life? Well, a lot of us would say, uh, Bible, start with Bible reading and prayer. Absolutely, totally, totally, totally. How can we say we're Christians if we don't actually talk to Jesus? We don't have a relationship with him in prayer. How, how can we be Christians? How can we call ourselves Christians if we're not in his word? We need his word. We need to feed on his word. Absolutely, those are, those are central ones. Well, we could also add on there fellowship other believers. The Bible is very big on Fellowship of other believers, so being part of a church family. Christianity is not an individual pursuit, absolutely. So that would be one of those core practices. Uh, you know, repentance. You know, holy living. You know, not just living however you want. Those would be four. And, and maybe that's where many Christians, I think, might stop there and say, if we're going to say, what are central practices every Christian needs to have in their life? We would maybe say those. Bible reading, being a part of a church, uh, repentance, living a holy life. I would suggest that there's one more that needs to be in there that is every bit as important as those four. It's not more important, but it's every bit as important as those four, and that is giving. And I don't think many of us think of giving up there with Bible reading and prayer and repentance. See, because giving, giving is actually supposed to be at the core of what it means to be a Christian, the Christian DNA. See, we are Christians. We are mimickers of Christ. We are supposed to reflect Christ's glory to the earth. And what was Jesus Christ? He was a giver. And our entire faith our entire faith, our salvation is based on a gift. Amen. A gift. Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Our, our entire faith, everything. How can we not have giving as central, 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 central to everything we do? Not just, you know, I have these four main practices, maybe some other things. I maybe do a little giving here or there. No, 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 no. Giving is central to the very DNA of what it means to be a Christian. Yes. Everything, let me repeat that, our whole salvation, our whole faith hangs on a gift. Jesus gave himself. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Think about this. He was in heaven. He had everything. How can this ever get old to us? This is the difference between us and the Macedonians. They had received this gift in gratitude. Many of us have become religious robots. We know what Jesus did, but it doesn't impact our hearts anymore. It's become old. How can this ever be old? He was in heaven. If any of us, well, someday we're going to be in heaven, but if any of us got to visit there, we wouldn't want to come back. We wouldn't want to come back. He was in heaven. He had full glory. 
you know, communion with the Father, the angels, he had everything. It's amazing. There's no sin and wickedness. And he comes down to earth and is born in a manger. I mean, if he was doing this to pump up his self-esteem, he would have done a lot different than coming in a manger. Then he lives 30 years of an anonymous life. God in the flesh. He's not telling everybody, worship me, worship me. He lives 30 years an anonymous life in Nazareth. He goes to school. He works as a carpenter. And then finally, the last three, he does ministry, but he's rejected by the people, utterly rejected. And here the God of the universe finds himself nailed, and they nail him to a tree. Big nails through his wrists and through his feet. And the part that never never ceases to stun me when I think about it is at any point people are laughing at him they have abused him horribly at any point he says one word this is the same God man who with a word can calm a storm and can calm the seas with one word he can melt those iron nails he can blow that cross to smithereens he can open up an earthquake and swallow all these people and here's the thing he knew from eternity past that he was going to have to do this he made the world knowing we were going to screw it up really, really, really badly. Knowing, and he still did it. He made it knowing that the only way to solve the problem would be for him to give himself. This shows us something super deep about the heart of Jesus Christ. He is a giver at his heart. He's a giver at his heart. And so he hangs on this cross literally being tortured for hours when at any moment he could come off. And in Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him. For the joy. And you know what's amazing to me? This last week I spent, I was just spending more time just appreciating him. You know what the crazy thing is? If he only ever had done that for us, it would be enough. I mean, if he had only ever done that, and if he ignored us the rest of our lives, but he saved us from hell, we could get up every morning, and when our feet hit the floor, we could say, hallelujah, today's another good day. That, that would be enough. But you know what's so crazy about him? He is such a giver at heart that he keeps giving to us. Amen. This last week, I was just appreciating him. Oh, I was spending time appreciating him. I was appreciating him again this morning. He didn't just die on a cross for us. I'm thinking of, of prayers he's answered in our marriage from years past, some of the deepest desires of our hearts and things that he's healed and things, answers to prayer for people in my family and things he's delivered me from. And things he's forgiven me of, shameful, stupid, embarrassing things. You wish you never did, but you did them. And now you don't have to feel guilty for them any longer. And he just keeps giving and giving and giving. And when you encounter giving like that, unless there's something wrong with your heart, there's only one way to respond, and that is you have to give back. That's what happened to the Macedonians. Let me share an illustration. I've, done, I've shared this one before, but it's just so true, and it's so real, and I still feel it. I have a very generous father-in-law, Ladon's dad, very generous. And 13 and a half years ago it is now, he built our house, okay? It's the only way we, we could afford it. And so he built our house, okay? Now, we would help him in the evenings and stuff like that, but me helping with construction, he, he, he did it, right? So lots of lots of late nights, months and months of late nights, and Saturdays, and he did this, okay? So he built his house. And at the end of it, we said thanks. But have you ever gotten a gift that's so big, and then you say thanks, and it's like, that's a dud? Like, have you ever had that? Because what they gave you actually is too big for just thanks. It's actually too big for thanks. So yeah, you say thanks, like, thanks for the house. Like, thanks doesn't cover it. And yet, there's nothing I can do to pay it back. I can't build him a house, okay? And if I did, he would never go in it. Okay? 
He'll be like, son, thank you for the thought, but I will never step foot in there. I'm, I want to live. So how do you say thank you? How do you say thank you when it's so big? And yet, if you have a heart of gratitude, there's something in the human heart, because this is what it means to love. You have to give something back. Well, I remember a couple years later, he was busy in the summers, and uh, I forget what all the circumstances were, but for a little while anyway, and he said, could you mow my lawn? Okay, now, mowing the lawn is such a, a, a rinky-dinky, what is that compared to getting a house? It's nothing. I pounced on it. I don't want anyone else mowing that lawn. Why? It, does it pay for what he's done? Absolutely not. But I was happy to do it. I don't want anyone else to mow that lawn. I want to do it because it's something. It's very small compared to what he did. But I have to, as a human being who loves and has received a gift, I encounter this gift, I must give back. Sometime after that, he was gone one winter. He just needed someone to shovel his driveway. I only had to do it a few times. Again, I, dog on a bone, give me that. I want to shovel it while you're gone. Why? Because I have to give something back. Actually, isn't this what happened to the Macedonians? Begging for the opportunity to give. Why? Because they had received this gift from Christ. They appreciated it. And the only thing you can do when you receive a gift is, I have, I have to give back. Amen. They weren't made to do it. They weren't told they had to do it. You say, well, what's the difference between them and us? I think many of us have become like religious robots. We've absolutely lost our appreciation for Jesus and what he's done for us and how good he's been for us. And when you just stop to begin to realize and allow what he's done to sink deep into your heart, you can't help but become a giver. He is a giver at heart. Our faith is based on giving. If we're going to reflect his glory here on the earth, we must be givers. Without being a giver, you cannot be a Christian in the sense of reflecting who he is because he's a giver. But you know, it's not just a lack of appreciation. There's one other thing. A lack of appreciation, lack of encountering Jesus' love and just being carried away with that in thanksgiving is one reason why we are not like the Macedonians. But there's another reason, and that is fear. For many of us, we're afraid. There's, there's fears. What if I don't have enough time? I can't give of myself anymore. What if I don't have enough energy? What if I fall apart? What if it's too much? I can't give up money. I've got bills. I've got repairs. I've got this and that. I can't give like those. I'm afraid. How does, so you, you read that passage about the Macedonians, you go, how does that fit with wisdom? How does that fit with having a budget? Because it doesn't seem like you can be spiritual and have a budget after reading how the Macedonians give. Isn't that true? So there's almost like a fear. I can't live like that. So on one hand, I don't have the appreciation. On the other hand, I'm afraid to even think, what does that look like? And Paul's so gracious on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's going to ans actually answer. He's going to answer several fears in these next passages. We're going to jump ahead there. Verse 10, or not jump ahead, the very next verse, verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. I want you to look at that underlying part there. A year ago. One of the things I, I'm so glad Paul has this piece in there because if all we had was the first part about the Macedonians, we might be forgiven for thinking that Macedonian-type generosity is always unplanned, chaotic, and everything. But actually, we see here that they had been planning this gift for a year. So I want to bring those two words together because we often don't think they can go together. Abundant joy, Holy Spirit-filled radical giving can go together with planning. 
Holy Spirit, abundant joy, radical giving does not have to just be uh, last minute, chaotic, and unplanned. Actually, planning can go with a move of generosity in the Spirit like this. Very serious planning can go into it, all right? That's the first thing, very much. We can, we can plan to give in this way, and that doesn't make it less Spirit-filled. Well, if we keep reading, we're going to read more here. Verse 12, again, and the reason I want to just highlight that point again one last time. I think some of us have this idea that if we got radical for Jesus, that word radical, if we got radical for Jesus and we just were willing to give him everything, we'd be walking down the street and he'd be like, all your cash to that person, your credit card to that person. You'd just be throwing your money away and you'd be, and you'd be out of money very quickly, okay? That is not what spirit-filled giving looks like. We see here, spirit-filled giving can be planned. But verse 12, we keep going in verse 12. Next one, okay? For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has. This is also very important. It's going to speak to another fear. Not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Okay? For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Here's another fear I think we have. If we're going to give like the Macedonians, we have to give absolutely everything we have. And I love Paul is so gracious that he has this piece in this passage. Because we see actually he's not teaching that Macedonian level giving is give absolutely everything so now you end up in the poor house. Okay? That's not what he's saying. Okay? In fact, in the long run, that doesn't help God's kingdom because if you give it all away like that, you have nothing left to give after that, and now you become a charity case, and other people's generosity has to flow to you instead of to the rest of the kingdom. So Paul says, radical, he lives with the Macedonians. Here's radical abundance of joy, spirit-filled giving. He says, but actually it can be planned, and I'm not saying you give everything. So here's what I want to say about that. There is a difference between sacrificial giving and and um, I, what better word? I apologize in advance. Cover your kids' ears. Stupid giving, okay? I know that some of you don't like your kids to say that, okay? But I just said it in a message. I don't know what else to call it, okay? There's a difference between sacrificial giving and stupid giving, okay? And by that I don't mean there are times when God asks people to do, you know, quote-unquote, the stupid, to give everything. There are times. I'm not, I'm not saying he never does that. But as a general rule, that's not his kingdom requirement of us. That's not what he's asking us to do. So this is where sacrificial Macedonian filled with love, Holy Spirit, sacrificial comes together with wisdom because the Bible talks about both. Where does this come together? We give, we sacrifice out of our wants, not out of our, what we actually need. Okay? We sacrifice out of our wants, not of what we actually need. So we don't borrow money in order to give. We don't go into debt in order to give. We don't give in such a way that we ruin our ability to give in the future or that we will now become a burden to others. What we do is we look at our life and what God has blessed us with and instead of doing as so many North American Christians do, which is this is how much I make and I'm going to live right at the boundary. I'm going to get the maximum house mortgage. I'm going to get the nicest car. I'm going to run up my credit cards on the newest phones and the nicest clothes. I'm just going to live right at the boundary of what I make and now I have nothing to give, to live like Jesus lived. My whole faith is based on a gift. Instead of that, I say, I want to be a Macedonian giver, but I can be a planner. It doesn't mean craziness. 
I'm going to live with less. I can actually live in, I can bring my circle in. So whatever your means are, different people, that circle's going to be a different size because people make different things. But I'm going to live within my means so that, and I'm going to live far enough within my means that I can give at a sacrificial level because I love Jesus so much. He sacrificed and gave himself for me. So how can I call myself a Christian and not sacrifice and give back? But I'm going to live far enough in that circle that I can live a life like that. Now here's the amazing thing. When... We live like this, we are more blessed. And now we're going to come full circle and we're going to answer the question, what does it mean when Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive? If we skip ahead just a few verses in the chapter 9, we see this in chapter 9, verse 6, famous passage. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Too many teachers have focused on this as purely a financial transaction. You give some money to God, God gives some money back to you, but this is so much bigger than money. This is about your life. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will actually reap bountifully. A giving life is a full life. You know, the only way I know how to describe this is just to use a little illustration, something that happened to me just this last week, just on Friday, two days ago. And I think it just illustrates how giving brings a bountiful, full life. So uh, me, there's a group of us from staff, our table group from Concord, that we went through Concord together with the staff. And there's a group of six of us, and we go for lunch once a month, to just keep those relationships going, and it's a blast. So, so on Friday, we went for our monthly lunch. And uh, we went, so we're having our, our burgers and stuff, and that fellowship is based on good burgers and, and fries, and it, really just, it, it just is. And, uh, and so we were having our lunch, and at the end of our lunch, we go to pay for our lunch, and a business person from here in the church had been in, in the restaurant, and he had actually already paid for us, okay? Now, on the grand scheme of things, in terms of sheer numbers and finances, this was not a change-your-life kind of gift, okay? This is not like you just won $100,000 or you won $500,000 or you even won $10,000. It's nothing like that. It was, for me, it was like 10 bucks, okay? It was like 10 bucks, okay? So in terms of numbers, not huge. But have you, ever even, have you ever received a gift like that, unexpected, even a small one? Isn't it amazing what it does to you inside? Like all of us at the table, you have this... I mean, if I had looked at my bank account and there was $10 more in there than I had thought... I wouldn't go, woohoo, it's, it's, it's 10 bucks. But if someone buys you a meal for 10 bucks and you didn't expect it, it's like your whole day just, woo. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, a, wow. You know, I can't go and buy a car now, but I just, I feel amazing. If you're having a bad day and someone buys you a meal it's, or a gift like that, it's amazing how your whole bad day, the whole perspective, isn't it true? A gift, you have an upwelling of joy, Love and also a hunger for dessert. We were all sitting there, well, we didn't pay for hamburgers, we may as well buy dessert. So uh, we bought desserts and we're sharing the desserts. So then we go pay for desserts. And unknowns to each other, was, uh, there was another business guy from our church who was there. He ended up paying for our, for our pies. And now, I don't want you guys to get the impression that this happens to us all the time because I don't, I don't want you to stop. But... Uh, um, <laughs> 
But by this point, okay, there's just so much love flowing in our hearts. I just want to walk around the restaurant just hugging people. Just go back and hug the cook and hug the... I mean, you just have joy, you have love. I woke up yesterday morning. First thing on my mind was these two guys. And not, you know, nothing, even the message, that sort of stuff. It's just that one, those, just a little gift like that. I'm in my, in, in the morning, I'm praying for them by name. I'm praying for their families. I'm praying a blessing on them. It's still leftovers from the day before. Just a couple little gifts. Let's just break this down. A couple little gifts. What, is, what can a gift do? Someone plants, sows a little gift. You get joy. You, literally, you just get joy. You get feelings of friendship. You get love. You get prayer. I mean, I just wanted to pray for these people. You, just, you get all these things out of one little gift. He who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. See, generosity creates these things. It's out of the heart of God. Generosity creates. It, it creates love, joy, friendship, prayer. It creates these things. You plant a little seed and it just, all kinds of stuff come out of it. And you can see it at the funerals. There's certain people where they have lived a giving life. You go to their funeral, it's different than a regular funeral. So many people there, so many people whose lives have been touched. Why? Because he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And of course, there's many people and many Christians, sadly enough, who don't live this principle. They live out of, they have lack of appreciation. They have fear. They're always afraid. I'm not going to have enough to pay the bills. I'm not going to have enough to pay for that repair. They're always afraid. We're not going to have enough. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough. They're always on what they don't have and what they won't be able to meet. And of course, you've got a budget for those things. There's no question. This isn't about being stupid. But they live that way and he who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. But a generous life is a full life, and that's when Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. All you have to do is experience a gift to know it. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, again, I think at the base of our heart and our thinking, one of the problems is I won't have enough. What if we could change that thinking? What if we could change that thinking? Yes, make a plan. It's not about being stupid. Make a plan. But what if we could change our thinking and, and with planning and all sorts of stuff, what if at the foundation of our thinking, of every thought that went through our minds was, I will always have enough. God will take, if I live a generous life, I will always have enough. I wonder how that would change us if we actually believe that. If I live a generous life and I live all out for God, I will always have enough. Wouldn't that just release you to give? It'd be so fun to give. I'm going to give. I'm going to give because I'm always going to have enough. God's going to take care of me. And you say, well, yeah, that would be neat, wouldn't it? Uh, too bad it's not in the Bible. Well, I'm glad you thought that. Let's go to the next verse. <laughs> next verse. This is just the very next verse. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that let these words sink into your heart so having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's actually a promise from God that you will always have enough. If you live a generous life. See, he wants us to reflect his glory on the earth. He wants us. The only way for us to reflect Jesus is to be givers because that's what he is. So he promises, in order 
Not, I promise you'll have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you can have an easy life. That's not how he finishes. No, no. I'm going to make sure that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you may abound in every good work so that you may live a generous life because that's what models me on this planet. God says you will receive it this morning. You will always have enough. Open up those hands and say, Jesus, I want to enter into the blessed life. Not just with my money, but with my time and my energy. I want to enter into the blessed life. And now look at what he says in the next verses. He's now going to quote Psalm 112, verse 9. As it is written, this is, what a, this is what a blessed life looks like. He's going to quote Psalm 112, verse 9. As it is written, he has distributed freely. This is what a godly person looks like. He distributes freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then God takes care of them. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. The more you give because you want to serve his kingdom, he multiplies that seed. He gives you more seed because he wants you to give more. So you just, you give, he says, I'm going to give you more. You serve me and you will always have enough. We'll multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Let me finish by just summing up, then we're going to sing. Four points to remember from this series. Four big points to remember from this series. We just recap it, four main ones. Work hard so you can provide for yourself and have enough left over to give to God's kingdom and others. Live within your means. That's the budget and planning part. So that you have plenty left over to give to God's kingdom and others. Plan to give. Start with the, tie, with the discipline of tithing to the church as we talked about last week. Um, but also plan to be generous to others. I know people in this church who actually budget a certain amount of money every month that they can spontaneously give away to people or pay for someone's meal or whatever. And lastly, trust God. There will always be enough. Can we appreciate him together? I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want us to appreciate him together. Lord Jesus, we appreciate you. Oh, I just preach this message. I read it in your word, Lord Jesus. I want to live the blessed life too. We want to live this blessed life. You have blessed us. You have given to us. And we want to give back to you. I pray that you would grow us in appreciation as a church, Jesus. We lift up your name. We lift up your name. You are so good to us. You continue to give to us. You answer our prayers. We help that to enter into our hearts and we want to give back to you. And Lord, take away our fears. I pray that that truth, we will always have enough that you will multiply the seed for the sower. Lord, we want to live those kinds of lives. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.